This is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Scott Crone. Today we're gonna talk about self-storage, opportunity zone funds, and things that you know, busy professionals, high-income professionals, high-net-worth professionals can do to reduce your capital gains bill. Opportunity zones and opportunity zone funds are a great way for high-income professionals to reduce your tax bill and completely wipe out capital gains over time by investing in certain areas in, in real estate and you can make a great return and wipe out up to you know 30% or so on your tax bill. I mean, depending on you know capital gains rates and everything at the times when it happens, you know. So this is a great opportunity. And Scott's gonna teach us about what his company is doing, investing in self-storage with an opportunity zone fund, two opportunity zone funds, how they're making fantastic returns, what they're doing with PACE financing. We have, we have not covered PACE financing on the show before. It's a, uh, another learning opportunity for me. So we're gonna talk about that. So if you're someone out there with a big capital gains bill you're looking at and you wanna get rid of it, listen to this episode and learn about opportunity zones. For those of you who don't know, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate syndicator, real estate investor, and I love talking about growing our wealth passively by investing in real estate. Without any further ado, here we go with Scott Crone. Scott, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. We look forward to the opportunity to talk with you. Happy to talk with you as well. Uh, for those out there who do not know about Scott Crone, tell us about yourself a little bit if you would. It wouldn't surprise me if you didn't, but <laughs> um, I, I'm from the Chicagoland area. I grew up in this in, in here and went away to college in Ohio and then came back to get my master's degree in architecture from the Illinois Institute of Technology. And that's where I got involved with real estate. I was fortunate enough that I had a professor who owned a real estate development company and was an architect and contractor. And so being that I was the only student with an undergraduate degree in non-architecture, he had me focusing more on the development side while my peers were more focusing on the architecture while we were working in the office. But my master's degree was a project that we actually got to do. And it was a 400 unit hundred million dollar project and so it was a great learning experience that I got to go on very early and I worked there for six years before starting my own firm and we've been doing real estate development architecture and construction um, the design build um, since that period of time wow wow so you have an extensive amount of experience and you've just been living in real estate so what are you doing now where we are in this uh, current market cycle well, we have two, we have two companies. Coded Design Build is our, um, our retail division, if you will. So if people hire us to do things, we'll do it for them. Um, we just finished building a $2 million home and we just converted a church back into a church. And now we're um, looking at doing a medical office um, building. Um, those are all where clients hire us to help them with, you know, land acquisition, financing, entitlements, uh, the design and then the build. And then um, on our investment side, we've liquidated our multifamily. We've stopped uh, developing single family and we are focusing specifically on self-storage, converting old 
urban buildings that are being underutilized or vacant and revitalizing them and bringing them back to life as self um, climate controlled self storage units and facilities. Cool. Where, uh, what part of the country are you focusing on self storage in? Well, we, um, right now, we, we, this past week, we, we just expanded. So we are in Wisconsin, Illinois, Ohio, and now Kentucky. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, you know, are you using any particular strategies to acquire these self-storage properties? I mean, you mentioned, it sounds like you're revitalizing old properties. So you, you know, some, some folks are buying up, you know, kind of older retail spaces, large, big, big box stores and converting those into self-storage. What type of properties are you going after to convert into self-storage? Uh, predominantly, we're looking for buildings that are in the urban center where there's a lot of uh, new um, growth within the multifamily development area. And so we're looking, it doesn't necessarily have to be a big box on one story, but it could be multiple stories, but you know, 80 to 110,000 square foot building um, that is really demographic driven. So we're, we're looking at opportunities for underserved in the marketplace and just converting those. So the one in Wisconsin was a storage facility, but it was, Historic, so we actually got historic tax credits for that one. Um, the one in Chicago used to be the original Lincoln Log Factory. And then the two in Ohio, one was storage, and we're converting to self-storage, and the other one's been empty for 40 years. And so um, the one in Kentucky, it will be, um, it has like different uh, businesses already in it, but it's too large, so we're going to reconfigure the building so that we have storage in one half, and then, um, commercial and retail in the other half. And so it will be a dual purpose building. Nice. Nice. What part of Kentucky? A little too early to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. And something I wanted to talk with you about, uh, talk about with you today was opportunity funds and, and opportunity zones. And we haven't covered that on the show yet. I've gotten the rundown, you know, from a few opportunity fund people, but it's definitely something that I think is worth discussing on the show that, you know, is not, it's a relatively new concept and it's no secret that it was not well utilized, at least initially, you know, Congress wasn't thrilled with, at least I think it was Congress with the amount that it was being used, but it seems now it's kind of picking up steam a bit. Can you explain, you know, what an opportunity zone fund is and, you know, how, we can use it, you know, let's, let's run through the, run through the strategy. Sure. Well, an opportunity zone fund is simply a fund that invests in an opportunity zone property or properties. And the only requirement is that 90% of the funds have to be invested in qualified properties. And so what is a qualified property? It's not every property. Um, the federal government left it up to each local municipality and state to determine what areas they want to encourage economic growth. So a lot of people assume opportunity zone means bad neighborhood. Well, it doesn't mean that. I mean, there's, there's opportunity zones in Hollywood. Um, the ones that we've done in Toledo and Dayton are both in the opportunity zones and they're both in the downtown markets and they're both in near booming, vibrant areas. And the one we're doing in Kentucky is also going to be in an opportunity. It, it is in an opportunity zone. I shouldn't say it will be the property is already in an opportunity zone. So what we're looking for specifically properties that are in the opportunity zones and then in states that are qualified for PACE financing. 
excuse me. So the opportunity zone is a, is a tax shelter from any capital gains. And so in real estate, it used to be the 1031. If you had a capital gain, you could roll it into the next property. Well, they wanted to encourage and spur growth. So the federal government passed, and it was the most bipartisan legislation that's been approved in probably the last 30 or 40 years, where if you take any capital gains, and it doesn't matter if it's from stock, it's from um, you know, you're selling something, um, it could be selling art, you'd be selling real estate, no matter what, where you have the capital gains, if you put it into the fund and it stays in it for the duration, not only is that uh, tax-free, the original investment, but the growth in the fund is also tax-free. So the people who developed it described it as the most powerful tool in the tax code. And so I think that's why there may feel that it was a little underutilized at first, um, but it's not entirely the investor's fault because it took a while for how it was going to be administered and, and what are the regulations and how it's going to be implemented, that took some time. So it, got, it was a little slow getting going, um, but now it's, it's picking up pace. Nice. So that is actually, that is an enormous opportunity to wipe out the capital gain on what you're selling and wiping out the capital gain on what you're investing in. That is huge. I mean, that is a really big opportunity that you know, people don't seem to be talking about enough that you know, our, our taxes are the biggest bill that most busy professionals pay, period. And if we can wipe that out, at least from a capital gains standpoint, then that is a, a great opportunity for us. So it is, it was interesting that it didn't get, it didn't pick up steam for a couple of years, but what you're saying makes sense that it took some time for both investors and probably the government to figure out how is this all really going to work? Yeah, it was passed in December of 17. Um, that was the, the, um, the tax bill that Trump passed in 17. It was actually created in the Obama administration, but it didn't get any traction. And so um, it, it went into law with uh, Trump. And so in 2018, the, the rules and regs didn't come out until very far into the year. And it was almost 2019 when the clarifications even came out. Wow. And so when we did our first fund in 2018, um, we were, I had to literally be on the phone with agents from the IRS trying to get an understanding of <laughs> how it was going to be administered. They're like, well, this is what we're thinking. This is what the direction we're trying to go. So if you do it in this way, you should be safe. And so we, we just try to make it as simple as possible, especially for our first fund. And we did it specifically for our investors. We, we knew that our property was in the opportunity zone. And at first we had no idea what that meant. And so I had to literally call them and then they called me back and I didn't recognize the phone number. So I went into voicemail and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I missed it. So I called them back, had to leave another message and then they called me back and I was in another meeting. I'm like, I saw the same phone number pop up. I'm like, I got to take this call. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we just sat on the phone talking with this IRA, IRS agent for, you know, like two hours. And the bottom line is that they're treating it like a self-directed IRA in terms of what are, qualified or disqualified investors. They want to make sure it's not, you're not investing in your own stuff, but it's, you know, arm link transactions and those sorts of things. But the, so we specifically set it up for our investors and we went to them and said, we have this ability to save you at least 30%. Who would want to have their investment in an opportunity zone fund versus a regular investment. We had three people raise their hands. And so we established the fund for them. 
And you know, the first question was, well, how much are you going to charge us? We're like, we're not going to charge you anything because you're, you're already investing with us. And so we're just going to create this tax company for you and all of the expenses are going to be built to the property. And so that way, you know, because we appreciate what you're doing, you're, we're, we're not looking at it as a, as a revenue generator for us. And so we did that in December. And then at Christmas, we had our party and uh, our holiday party. And they came to us and said, when are you going to open up your next fund? We want to invest more money. And so uh, <laughs> that's how we got the second fund going. Interesting. Okay. So you must have a, a few investors by now. I mean, so what do you, what do you see as like the ideal profile for someone who is investing in uh, these types of funds from just statistically who's most interested who does it seem to benefit the most um you know that's because it is a 30 percent is an enormous savings just to take like right off the top you're talking about specifically the opportunity funds yeah yeah who who seems to be most interested in it from your experience like a profile yeah the profile would be I would say between 40 and call it 50, 55 years old. And the reason why I say that is not to say that someone below 40 doesn't have capital gains, but the people that are doing it with us are old enough that they've have substantial capital gains. You know, um, a lot of them have come from the San Francisco Bay area in terms of like, you know, investing in, in stocks and they felt the stocks were at the peak. And so they wanted to, you know, alter their investment strategy or other people had sold off real estate. Uh, we have one who's just um, sold off his self-storage facilities. He loves self-storage. And so he wanted to roll it into it. And so um, people who have significant capital gains, but not too old that they're approaching retirement where they're, you know, because there is a time frame. you have to leave the money in for a long period of time in order to utilize the full extent. And so people that are patient. And so, um, you know, they're not looking you know, if they're 65 and they want to retire at 70, you know, it's not a five-year play. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you do have to leave your money in the fund for a long time. How long is it? Seven years, 10 years? Yeah. Well, there's a progression. So there's a five, seven, 10 year, you know, stack, you know, you get different benefits. I mean, if you invested for two years, you're basically using it as a tax deferring mechanism versus a tax shelter. Um, so you're, you've deferred it for that two year period of time. And then if you pull it out, then you have to pay taxes at that point in time. So the idea was that to leave it in as long as possible. So that, that way, you know, the investment stays in the areas that they want to, to develop and stuff like that. Hmm. Okay. Okay. You mentioned another uh, thing that you're going after is, uh, pace financing. And that's something I, I'm not aware of at all. Um, so can you educate us on that? Like, what is it, what's the upside and, and why are you going after PACE financing? PACE financing is a, a department of energy program. So the opportunity zones in the treasury with the IRS, but PACE financing is in the department of energy. And again, they left each state to implement it on their own. And so not every state has adopted PACE. And so if you go on to, uh, you know, if you do a search for PACE um, which is Property Assessed Clean Energy Act. And they, the idea of it is if you have a building and you're looking to improve the economic performance of it in terms of making it more sustainable or green, the money that is required to do that can be, the, the, the financing instrument can be applied 
to your real estate taxes with a special assessment as opposed to a debt instrument. And so from a capital staff perspective, banks view it as equity versus debt because it's above the line item because it falls under your property taxes. So therefore it doesn't show up as a lien as a debt position. So if we're investing like a million dollars of pace financing, that is amortized over the lifespan of the improvements, let's call it 20 years. And then that is then broken up and applied as a special assessment. So we pay two payments um, with the, for the interest. Okay. So what does that mean to the, to the investor? I don't know if I'm, I'm a little thick skulled. I don't know if I'm fully grokking it, you know, so let's go through, you know, the capital stack or the, or the benefit, you know, to the investor. What does that mean in terms of, you know, return? So let's say we, we have to have 70% debt, you know, for most banks require for commercial 70% debt in terms of the total capital stack mm -hmm. with, okay. So if we have to fill that remaining 30%, if we have 15% of it is pace financing and 15% of it is, is cash is equity, then in essence, the investors are getting the benefit because that 15% is filling the entire 30% capital stack. So in essence, it doubles their rate of return. Interesting. Okay. So the, what rate does the pace financing come at or you know, what's, what's the cost of that financing? It's, it's basically like bond financing. It's, it's, you know, incredibly low interest rates. So five, 6%. Wow. So the investors are, so that's, that pace financing is probably fixed, right? It's probably, are they going to get paid before the investors, but the invest investors have much more potential upside? Like how does the. Right. So they're paying okay. the property taxes. So when you, you know, when the bill comes out you make your payment as part of your operating expenses. And so. If we, let's just say we're, we're making $100,000 and we had $30,000 invested, you take the 100 divided by the 30. But in essence, you're taking the 100 divided by the 15 because now, in essence, we have $15,000 invested. Interesting. Okay. That is, that is interesting. So how do you, um, how do you explain that to investors from, from your end? Because it's a fairly, you know, we have to, as investors, we have to get savvy on these things so we can make an educated decision. You know, have you found that they're mostly satisfied with that or, or that explanation or are you, you know, is it more of a relationship thing? I'm just wondering like, what's your, uh, your pitch, if you will. Well, I mean, the first and foremost is that it's about our investors. It's about our relationship with them. And so they know that we're looking for any advantage that we can give them. Um, so, you know, we've, we've sold off cell towers. We've sold, um, we've done historic tax credits that go back to them. We, you know, with the opportunity zone, we did that specifically for their interest. Not, it doesn't benefit us, but it benefits them. And so we're always looking for how we can benefit them within the capital sector. So the first part is they, they recognize that that is what we're trying to do for them is how we can protect and, and enhance their investment. So we don't, a lot of people go in and just buy an, a property because it's in an opportunity zone. We don't do that. We, it first has to make good economic sense, the deal on its own. And then if we can enhance it with these other things, then it's just in our mind gravy. So the first thing is our investors understand that that's the perspective that we're coming from, that we're putting them first. Um, the second thing is 
we did have to spend a good, a good deal of time explaining to them that where are the payments coming from and how do they fit into the typical modeling. And so, you know, here in Illinois, property taxes are high. So, you know, we did a lot of our modeling with high property taxes across all of our, our, our buildings. But, you know, when we went into Ohio, the property taxes are like $16,000 for a 100,000 square foot building. I mean, they're pretty low. But when we put in the PACE financing, it's almost equal to what we pay in property taxes here in Chicago. And so if our revenue supports it, then we don't really have to worry about that, those extra payments. And so that's what we show them is how it fits, it fits into the cash flow. And then from there, what we have to pay in debt servicing after that. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. For me, from my perspective, I mean, obviously, yeah, as you mentioned, the, the, relationship is very important. But as I think about this, you know, if I was making an investment decision on it, I would need to really get a better understanding of the cash flow and how that's all going to impact the return and then the, the potential risks here. Uh, because as you, as you said, it's treated as a property tax. So, you know, you're kind of, it sounds like you're kind of running potentially another, another risk that you have another tax man uh, to be paid on this property, but you know, you're probably buying with such a margin that it's not a big deal. So, you know, is that right? Am I understanding that right? And and how are you mitigating that potential risk? Well, the first thing we're doing is, is always on the acquisition. So the, the last two buildings that we bought, we bought it at 11 and $12 a square foot. So we can't build you know, we can't build new for that price. So we're buying well below replacement costs. The one we went to contract in uh, Kentucky with is at $17. So, I mean, again, we're buying it well below replacement costs. So that's the first part is that when we, when we go into it, even with our improvements, we're still at 65% compared to new construction of our, of our competitors. And so that's, what, that's the first step. We always look to have a competitive advantage in terms of the acquisition and the redevelopment. The second part is we model it in, um, you know, the, one of the beauties of self-storage is it is very predictable. And so we can model in what are all the expenses and what are the projected revenues and then making sure that our capital stack and our payments do match in with our capital. So our cash flow. So we, we look at a, a, initially a two year cash flow analysis. And then after that, then it's modeled out percentagely between years three and seven. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So you build in some kind of assumptions, some assumptions in there too. Um, if I'm sure if the, if the market turns and you know, what's your break even occupancy, if you will, you know, that's more of a multifamily concept. You're doing self-storage, but how much, uh, margin do you have in case there are occupancy issues or, or if there is another property built nearby, there's more competition that comes online. That, right. Yeah, you're not running thin. And, th and that's where we look at the saturation levels in terms of what, how much competition there is. And so, for instance, the one in Dayton, we were around two uh, square feet of lockers per capita, which is, you know, the national average is seven. Mm -hmm. So we were well below what the standards were. And I think within five miles, it was three, three and a half. So we were, we were well below it. But there's also a resistance for adding self-storage in these markets. So the, the last two that we were actually, even the one we're currently under, uh, you know, working on the contract right now, it's um, 
they're all currently zoned for self storage. And so we didn't have to change the zoning. We went in as of right. Okay. So you're saying that the, the zoning boards or whoever's in charge in that area is not allowing more self storage zoning. So there's a lot of resistance and it'll be very difficult for somebody to come in and build new self storage product. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And as far as uh, looking at the saturation, you know, are you looking, do you look at distance rings? You look at travel times, like what's your algorithm for, you know, picking your radii or how figuring out, you know, what kind of competition you, you have or where your close competition is? Well, we do both. I mean, obviously the first easy metric is the radius ring um, just to get a sense, but obviously if there's natural barriers, um, whether it be interstates or things along those lines, we take those things into consideration. Um, and then we also look at what's happening in the urban development. So the, the one that we're going into in Kentucky, we're really excited about because it's a, it's a really fast growing urban market right there. And we've already partnering or looking to partner with existing local businesses that want to grow. And we've met with them and said, Hey, this is what we want to do with this building. And so they have interest in partnering with us to, to come in and fill the non self store side. And so, you know, we, we look for those sort of relationships in, in terms of making sure that we're, we're all moving in the same direction. So, that building will be a little bit different for us in the sense that we will have existing cash flow in the building from day one versus our other developments, which you know are dark in terms of revenue, you know, for nine months to a year while we're going through the permits and building it. And then, you know, when we first open up, we don't have any revenue for, you know, positive cash flow in terms of covering our expenses until a year into the project. Wow. Wow. So yeah, you got to be really uh, confident on your, your numbers. You mentioned uh, when we first got started talking that you've exited all of your multifamily properties and now you're uh, fully into self-storage. How many self-storage deals had you done before you got into uh, the opportunity fund strategy? Um, it was our fifth one fifth and sixth one. Interesting. Okay. And it, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of sounds like the opportunity fund strategy encourages, uh, encourages investment in more distressed assets. Would you, would you agree or disagree with that? Um, well, our one in Toledo, I wouldn't call it distressed. It was a, it was a functioning business. And we mm -hmm. saw greater potential than what they were getting. And so, um, you know, the, the owner was happy with the price that we gave them. And so obviously, cause we, he sold it to us. And so, but we saw that there was more potential for the property. The one in Dayton was hundred percent distressed. It had been vacant for like 40 years, but within a quarter mile there, they've added like 600 residential apartments and wow. townhomes within a quarter mile. So we were, we were very ecstatic when we saw all the development that's going on around it. Interesting. Okay. So it sounds like in, in, in essence, the opportunity zone hasn't necessarily impacted the quality of asset that you, you go after. It doesn't make a, any particular investment look more attractive if I'm understanding that right. Um, well, the, the building has to work on itself first mm -hmm. and foremost. So if the building doesn't meet it, then we won't do it. Um, 
as I said, that's, that's the first criteria. So we see the opportunity zone as just a benefit for the people that want to participate in it. And we, you know, we have blended buildings, if you will. And when I say blended, not all of the investment is opportunity zone funding money. It is also um, traditional, you know, standard investor cash, if you will. Hmm. So the building in, in Kentucky, again, it, it's, I would call that one more of a merging neighborhood versus the other two. And the reason we really got, it's three blocks from the downtown area, but over Christmas, they set up a, an ice skating rink near there and everybody was flocking to this and it was packed. And so, you know, it's, it's a, it's an area that they're seeing urban growth and, and development towards. And that's the type of thing that we look for and we're excited about. That's cool. That's cool. So you, you mentioned you have traditional investor capital and opportunity fund uh, capital invested. Are they, how does that structure work? And you know, why, why'd you set it up that way? And what does that all mean? Is the first I've heard that the two can be uh, commingled, if you will. Yeah. Blended. Yeah. Um, so let's just say that um, you're investing as an, as a non uh, opportunity zone investor. So we have our opportunity zone investment fund over here. So let's say I'm doing that. If I invest in that, I'm investing in the fund and then the fund invests in our LLC. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you would just be directly investing in the LLC. So if you look at our operate operating agreements at Taylor, you know, X amount of money, and then it would say code opportunity fund, you know, whatever number we're on now. And it would, it would show them on, the properties LLC as that investor and it would have that dollar amount associated with it. Okay. So why would a particular investor choose to invest in a, you know, the taxable strategy rather than invest in the fund? If they're investing in the same asset, sounds like the fund has, you know, the fund obviously has much greater tax incentives. Uh, so they might not have capital gains. So they might just have you know, ordinary income that they're taking and investing versus capital gain. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. But they don't, uh, they're, they're kind of foregrowing the, it's capital gains, um, wipes out the capital gains on what you sell to get into the fund and wipes out the capital gains within the fund as well. Right. So the person who's investing, uh, just traditionally, uh, you know, outside of the fund, they might not have capital gains on what they're investing, but they're still, not getting that tax advantage from actually investing with the fund. Am I getting that right? They, they're not getting that extra bonus, right? But they are getting the other advantages of real estate in the mm-hmm. sense that we're, we're doing cost segregation, which is, you know, forcing the depreciation rate at a higher level. Um, obviously during this, during the lease up period, they're getting the losses because of the fact that it's non-performing for, you know, two, two years per se. And so they're, they're getting those added benefits of a tax shelter that are typically found within real estate. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. And does one have to be, this is a question that comes up all the time in the syndication world, you know, is, is, can I invest in syndications if I'm not accredited? And the answer is yes. You just have to go through some extra steps. Is that something that, that comes up in here where do you have to be accredited to invest in opportunity zone funds in general? And, and is that an opportunity for, non-accredited investors or, or how does that kind of play in here? That's a very interesting question. And I've, I've actually spoken to the person who actually wrote the 
his name is Steve Glickman. He came up with the whole concept of the opportunities film. Well, so we were presenting at a, an opportunity zone conference at the same time in Las Vegas and we were on different panels, but there's nothing in the code that says about accredited versus non-accredited investors within the opportunity zones. It's just anybody who has capital gains. So it, it's no different than a, a 1031 investor. And so that, that is a unique loophole that I'm not sure that if people thought about or didn't take into consideration or just assume that if you have, you know, 50, a hundred thousand, 200 or half a million dollars of capital gains that you would by, by nature or by default be an accredited investor. Um, you know, I don't know what the, the logic was behind it, but there's, there's nothing written specifically about it. Um, we go through the same process. You know, we have our investors fill out the same paperwork. So they have you no know, subscription agreement and they have their own operating agreement and all those sorts of things. And we, we treat it the same way, but there's nothing in the code that specifically says, or at least not, I'm not familiar with that says it about a creditor versus non-accredited. Interesting. That's good to know. But yeah, you make a good point. If you're going to have really substantial capital gains on the order of half a million or, or whatever, that your, your odds of being accredited are fairly high because you might have a net worth over a million dollars or, or meet some of the other requirements. So right. the people who have good reason to invest in opportunity zone funds and are not accredited are probably kind of few and far between. Right. I mean, our, our smallest investment on the, in the opportunity zone fund was, was $50,000. And so, you know, that, that, that's, you know, where we see it as the bin people below $50,000 haven't approached us. And so, mm-hmm. you know, but again, our typical investors investing between oh, well over $50,000, but they have, in this case, they had $50,000 again. And they said, we want to put it all into the fund. Cool. All right. So we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Scott, I've got three questions. I ask every guest in the show. Are you ready? I am ready. I'm looking forward to this. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? My children. Um, I, I, we've had the philosophy of really encouraging them to develop and grow the skills or the talents that they wanted. And it's, it's been so awesome to see them move from being teenagers into young adults and really pursuing the things that drive them. And so um, the time and the effort that we invested in them, I, I think they're my, my best investment. Nice. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment you ever made? At the crash, we thought um, we thought we could get into notes and, and be initiating notes. And um, you know, at that point in time, it, it was harder to risk to to analyze the risk and the volatility of the situation. And so, I don't think I had a good enough handle. Now looking back on it, on how to assess the volatility of the marketplace within those notes. And so for us, even though we did well in it, I think it wasn't our, you know, it, we didn't do as well as we had hoped. And so it, it became a lot more time management for us than what I anticipated. And we actually had to take some of those notes and, and complete the work. And so it, it did not go as smoothly as we wanted, but that was probably, um, you know, one of the worst ones that we've done. Interesting. Interesting. I would not have expected that. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in investing? Uh, trust but verify. Um, you know, I've, I've had some, uh, a relationship with a business partner that wasn't so good. And, and um, you know, it began with trust, but it, it, a lot of things need to be verified. 
And so now we, we really focus on that. And, you know, it's things that we apply throughout all of our lives now. It's like, even with our kids, like we trust you, but we're still going to check in and make sure and verify <laughs> that you are where you're supposed to be. But, um, you know, now that, you know, my, my oldest is, you know, almost graduated from college, we don't have to do it as much. But, you know, having that foundation, it, it, it creates a lot more trust going forward in the future. So everything in our business now, because of that last relationship, there's checks and balances to make sure that we, you know, every department that we work in, every department that we have has that, that trust and verify. Nice. Nice. I like that. So Scott, thanks for everything today. I'm a big fan of self-storage investing and, you know, my self-storage investments are doing fantastic. And the, the opportunity zone fund, I think is a good opportunity for high income, high net worth investors to really multiply their gains and invest in areas that are distressed. So everybody wins. If folks want to learn more about what you do, more about your business, your fund, everything like that, where can they get in touch with you? Our website is Coda, C-O-D-A, Amazon Management, G is in group.com. So that's CodaMG.com. And if you want to email us, it's at info at CodaMG.com. Nice. Well, uh, longtime listeners of the show and friends will know that Led Zeppelin is my favorite band ever in the world. <laughs> you could have picked a better Led Zeppelin album to name your company after. Just a thought. But you know. we, you get, we get that question quite a bit, <laughs> but it's, it's occurring less and less now that the fewer of the millennials listen to Led Zeppelin. But yes, <laughs> it, was not, it was not named after Led Zeppelin, but we do get that question quite a bit. That is true. The uh, Coda did come out almost 40 years ago, so it is a bit dated and it was probably their worst album. So <laughs> I see why. Which still makes it a good album. It's, yeah, it's still, yeah, it's in comparison to what? In comparison to what? In compar so, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks once again to everybody out there. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. If you know anyone out there who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, Please share the show with them and bring them into the fold. Thank you for tuning in and have a great rest of your day.